Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. This bold assertion from the Apostle James reminds us that we find, when we find fellowship with unbelievers in beliefs and values and fleshly practices that are inspired by the God-denying spirit of the age, we alienate ourselves from God. Fellowship with the world, open communion with those who do not submit to the Lordship of Christ, constitutes infidelity to the Lord. Christian marriage might illustrate this truth. Would it be good for me as a husband to have a female friend? To have various female friends? Say, well, there's, that would be a good thing. In fact, I don't think Beth would be intimidated at all by that. She's not. She shouldn't be. And she, in fact, would not take it as a compliment if I had no other women friends. But there is a kind of friendship, we understand, that assaults the bond of marriage. If I developed the kind of friendship with a woman that was flirtatious in nature, if I befriended a woman such that I preferred to spend time with her in ways that cut Beth out, such a friendship would constitute marital infidelity and it would alienate husband and wife, wouldn't it? It's obvious. In this sense of the word, a husband cannot befriend a mistress and befriend his wife. It's infidelity. Likewise, we understand that scenario, but we must also then apply and likewise understand that a believer cannot befriend the world and be loyal to Christ. This is an impossibility. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Now, I wonder as you hear those words spoken today, we don't apologize for them as a church. It's what the Scriptures teach, and we're coming to understand and learn this truth. But I wonder if you have come to terms with it. Have you come to terms with the reality that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I think if we intend to truly follow Jesus, we must grow in our capacities to identify what the world is. To know how it thinks, to know what it wants us to do. Much as a faithful husband can identify a prostitute and ably resist her advances. He must be capable in that way and skillful in that way to be discerning as he walks about in this world. And if we intend to follow Jesus we will likewise embrace the call to live distinctive lives with skill to discern what the world is and knowing that it will mean as we live holy lives, we live knowing that we will not often endear ourselves to those who live around us. This is not a path to popularity. This is a path, in fact, many times to alienation from those who live around us. If I take the concept that I cannot love my wife and a mistress into my everyday life, it will mean that I follow certain principles and I hone certain spiritual skills in order to remain faithful to her. 
It will mean I learn to relate in a certain way to sensually provocative images. I will learn to detect inappropriate advances from designing women, and I will learn to deflect them. It will mean I learn to actively nurture my relationship with her so as to douse any smoldering desire for illicit behavior. Now, in like manner, we understand there to be the case with Christian marriage. In like manner, if we want to be loyal to our Savior, we must develop skills to detect temptations to spiritual infidelity and the moral fortitude to withstand them. And this brings us back to Isaiah's record of the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah. In Isaiah chapters 36 through 38, we have witnessed over the last few weeks evidences of the faithful, God-honoring ministry of Hezekiah the king of Judah. When the kingdom of Judah was invaded by the Assyrian army, where did Hezekiah turn? He turned not to where most would turn in that day, to the nations that surrounded seeking unholy alliances that would help him overcome this trial, but he turned to God in prayer. He said, I want to do this thing in a way that is faithful to the Lord. I want to take on this power of Assyria in a way that honors God. So he appealed to the prophet. He sought the Word of God. He prayed and sought the Lord. Unlike his father Ahaz in very similar circumstances, Hezekiah did not flirt with the temptation to ally with a foreign army. Now, last week we considered a different crisis in Hezekiah's life, and that was the crisis of illness. He came right to the verge of death. If nothing had happened, he would have died of this illness. And again, we see Hezekiah relating to the crisis in exactly the same way. He turns to God in prayer. He seeks healing from the Lord. And God answers his prayer and extends his life 15 years. At Isaiah's prompting, Hezekiah used medical means, but he put his trust in the Lord for healing. And so we come now today to the 39th chapter of Isaiah, and here, Hezekiah is feeling really good, uh, literally. He has been restored to life, given a new lease on life. He has 15 more years from God's Word, and he is feeling very good about his situation. He's a man of vast giftedness. Remember, in Israel today, you can see evidences of Hezekiah uh, having lived there. He made a difference. He was a builder. He was an engineer of sorts. He was a military leader. He was a man of faithful worship to the Lord. He was a gifted man, ably leading the kingdom of Judah. And having restored the worship to the Lord, he now faces a different kind of crisis. Things seem to be going very well. However, we put the chronology of these chapters together. Hezekiah is a successful and powerful king. He faces the Assyrian army, he faces illness unto death, and he wins. But now he is going to face a crisis that is distinct, and that is in some ways harder than any of the others that have come before. The 
Before we get to that crisis, one more note just on the book of Isaiah and how it's put together so that we can see chapter 39 in its larger context. The first 35 chapters of Isaiah have a heavy emphasis on this theme. Do not trust the nations. The nations of this world will pull you down as God's people. Don't put your trust in them. Be faithful to God against the temptations that they bring and the trials that come in, in relating to these nations. Now Hezekiah, in contrast to Ahaz, his father, seems to be one who ideally honors this direction. He has trusted the Lord in this situation with Assyria, and he seems to stand as exhibit one of the kind of king that God desires, a king that will trust the Lord at all costs. As we come to Isaiah 39, Hezekiah faces an entirely different temptation. And this temptation now is to befriend the world. He's faced with the most critical crisis that flies in the face of the first 35 chapters. 36, 37, 38, he has been tracking with God and faithful. But now... This temptation, this crisis. We find it in verse 1 of chapter 39, the Babylonians visit Hezekiah. At that time we read, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Considering the historical context, it's possible that Merodach Baladan was impressed with Hezekiah's recovery perhaps impressed with the sign that God gave of his extended life. But believe me, political motivations are more significant here than anything having to do with illness. Merodach Baladin was a very colorful leader, let's just say that. He had an eventful and contentious relationship with the Assyrians. Colorful enough that the Assyrians called him a terrorist. In his homeland, he was known as a man of great honor. Because he was a man who was known there as a freedom fighter. At times he led Babylon as a vassal state that was subservient to Assyria. At other times he was able to wiggle free from Assyrian control. And he just kind of went back and forth in this very intriguing story and account of his uh, uh, rejection of Assyrian rule. He ended up ultimately being crushed by the Assyrian king Sennacherib and he escaped to an island in the Persian Gulf. It doesn't really sound like paradise to me, but he escapes there and no one ever hears from him again. That's Merodach Baladin, and that's the one who comes knocking at Hezekiah's door through his envoys, of course. But when we come to the history of Isaiah 39, Merodach Baladin is actively seeking to stir up whatever trouble he could for Assyria by recruiting partners on the fringes of Assyrian rule to rebel. So let's picture this room as the Assyrian domain. And over here on these chairs and this seating area is one stretch of that domain, and over here on the other side is another stretch of that domain. And on this stretch, somewhere in this area, is where Merodach Baladin is living, and he goes all the way across our auditorium there to that section over there, and he says, what do you think about rebelling against the king of Assyria? 
Now, why does he do that? He's over here, you're over here. If you're rebelling against the king, you're going to attract attention over there, away from me over here. It makes perfect sense what he's up to. And he brings letters to this effect. We're not told what the letters say. And I I don't think that we need to know what they say. Obviously, specifically, the Bible doesn't reveal it. But I think generally understanding the context, it has something to do with this. Let's work together on the fringes of Assyrian rule and seek to rebel and cause them trouble. Because if you're the Assyrian king and you've got Babylon over here and you've got Judah over here, they're a fair part apart. Fair ways apart, aren't they? So if I have to be attending over here and I have to be attending over there, I start to get really stretched with my resources and at the fringes of the power, the fringes of the domain, these nations will rebel, do rebel and cause difficulty. So what do you think, Hezekiah? Will you join with me? Well, let's work together and see what we can do to resist Assyria. For the envoys to come from Babylon and to acknowledge Hezekiah's importance was quite an honor for Hezekiah. What he does not recognize is that it's the equivalent of a married woman being told she looked beautiful by a man who was not her husband and who had no good intentions. Hezekiah does not discern this. And this is not going to end well. Verse 2. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Now again, we need to understand what's happening, what we should read between the lines. Why does he show off Judah's riches? Well, It's connected, verse 2, to the fact that he welcomed them gladly. He's impressed with this visit. He likes the attention. And when you show off your riches as a kingdom, you're not showing them off to thieves. You're not showing them off to marauders. You're showing them off to whom? To somebody you trust. Somebody you want to impress. And I think there's little doubt here that there's pride behind Hezekiah's decision to show off all of the riches of Judah. He faced an extremely tempting situation and he yields to the pressure. And it's really an ugly picture that we're to see here. As Oswald, one commentator, puts it, Hezekiah, we see Hezekiah scuttling about, showing off his tawdry wealth before the politely approving gaze of the Babylonians, who have in fact seen wealth many times the value of the Judeans' little hoard in their own homeland. But I would add also, still value value. They still value the treasures that they see. As Hezekiah is feeling proud of himself, as he's dreaming of glories that await him in the future, as an ally of Babylon who shows up Just at this particular point in time, at this particular point in history, he's feeling very good about the situation. As he's feeling very good about the situation, who shows up next? Knock on the front gate, but the prophet. The prophet Isaiah. Verse 3, 
Isaiah confronts Hezekiah with what he's done. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Let me stop here just for a moment and say there is no parallel in, ancient, in the ancient world to the prophets of Israel. The prophets, and Isaiah was among the foremost, were not royalty, so they were independent of the monarchy of the king, and they were not priests, so they were not ordered to the worship of Israel and, and, and oriented there. The prophets were independent spokesmen who ideally, at least, spoke for God. Who knows what Babylon thought of Hezekiah's performance, but what mattered is what God thought, and Isaiah was about to take away all doubt and reign on the parade of Hezekiah's pride. Middle of verse 3, Hezekiah answers, They have come to me from a far country and from Babylon. Do you notice the deflection there? Um, What did these men say? They've come to me from a far country. He avoids what exactly they said. Doesn't want to report on the letters. Hezekiah focuses only on how far they've come and that he is merely being a kind host to these who have come from such a very long journey. They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And Isaiah responds, verse 4, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. The order of the Hebrew text indicates that he speaks with something, uh, a bit of a testy response to the prophet. A bit of defiance is here in the voice of Hezekiah. He's emphasizing what he has shown. I've I've shown them everything. I've not withheld anything from them. Isaiah understands how protocol works in the situation. Hezekiah understands showing your wealth to these envoys is a way of saying, we're together here. We're on the same page. We're friends. And Isaiah confronts that. What have you shown him? Second Chronicles 32 and verse 25 also confirms that Hezekiah was filled with pride. So here we see Hezekiah in a light we've never seen him in before. We have this interest for this outside source and the Word of God coming in conflict with it and he takes on a position of resistance to God's Word and God's will. And Isaiah sees it and prophesies then God's judgment on Hezekiah, beginning at verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies. I don't think it's a mistake that he uses that phrase. Hear the word of the Lord of the armies. You want to connect with Babylon and to preserve yourself against the Assyrian authority that now rules in some respect in the land. Hear from the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. 
You want to impress Babylon with your wealth? Well, they will indeed be impressed. Impressed enough to plunder it and to take it back to Babylon. Now, it's interesting. God works so slowly from our perspective, doesn't he? It's 170 years before Babylon actually does this. But this prophecy says, in time, these very Babylonians are going to take the riches that you have shown them, at least in theory, those, the riches that Judah holds, and they're going to take it back to Babylon. And 170 years later, that's exactly what happens. Now, how, does, how do the people of Isaiah's day take this prophecy? I think many of them would have looked at this as bewilderment. Babylon? Babylon once was a great power, but she's not a great power now. Assyria is the great power. Babylon, come in here and take all of our riches, which means that they'll sack our city, Jerusalem, and they'll be able to walk in here and do whatever they... Babylon? The prophet speaking for the God who stands in the future and knows all that will come to pass says, these riches will be taken there. And what you have done is a precursor of the judgment that will ultimately fall. By his unfaithful flirtation with the godless Babylonians, Hezekiah assures that the coffers that his forefathers had worked to fill would be drained. Babylon looked like a friend now, but she would steal not only Hezekiah's heart, Babylon would steal Judah's riches. Remember to the north? The northern kingdom of Israel sought friendship with Assyria. Just a few years earlier, Assyria had taken Israel captive. And now the prophet says to the southern kingdom, you have flirted with Babylon, you will be taken captive by Babylon. That's assumed in here more will be described as the prophet continues and as the prophecies of Scripture continue directed to Israel. In fact, I think we see a principle here. Babylon looked like a friend, but in the end burned Israel badly. And I think any time that we put our ultimate trust in anything but God, that person, that possession, that goal will in the end destroy us. The prophecy continues, and it's not good, verse 7. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Eunuchs had no future for them, no line that continues, no offspring. You'll not only have the riches of Israel taken, but your sons, now that doesn't mean his immediate sons, but it, it's as, as in Hebrew terminology is the case, it means ancestors your offspring into the generations that come will be taken captive to Babylon. And there we have an indication of the actual captivity of Judah in Babylon, which will come about in 586 and in various stages. Well, Hezekiah responds in verse 8 and says to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Now, faithful commentators argue that Hezekiah's statement is entirely positive. 
They take his statement to be an admission of guilt. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. And I think we can take that fairly straightforward. They take his statement to be an acknowledgement of God's mercy as well. There will be peace and security in my days. And they say that Hezekiah is praising God and thanking God. Other faithful commentators argue that Hezekiah's statement is selfish. He admits to his sin of befriending Babylon and lacking fidelity to God, but the statement, there will be peace and security in my days, is small-minded and self-centered. They would take his statement here to be a statement of, I don't care what happens in the future, at least I will be protected. Well, I don't know if ultimately... We can give a dogmatic answer to how we should take this, but I do think we can get somewhere objectively. By no stretch of the imagination is this a very insightful or deep comment. Putting the best spin on it, Hezekiah is rejoicing in God's mercy, but even at that, he's not thinking very deeply about the future, is he? Your people are going to go into captivity in Babylon. And what does he say? There will be peace and security in my days. He celebrates the fact here that 38.5, he will live another 15 years. But he says nothing about the horror of his offspring, his nation's treasures, the future of God's people is very much in trouble and in some sense because of his own actions. So to think there will be peace and security in my day seems so short-sighted as to raise questions naturally about Hezekiah's mindset. Indeed, as we pan out and we look at the chapter that precedes here, there's ample reason to see this entire narrative as a spiritual tragedy. If you look on the graphic here before us, we'll just compare chapter 38 and chapter 39. Notice the contrast here. In 38, Hezekiah is sick. 39, he is well. In 38, representing the king of heaven, Isaiah visits the king of Judah, representing the king of Babylon, 39. Envoys visit the king of Judah. In 38, there is a promise of divine deliverance. In 39, an enticement of human alliance. In 38, a sign that confirms God's blessing. In 39, prophecy confirms God's judgment. Isaiah speaks to the king's health in 38. Isaiah speaks to Judah's judgment in 39. Hezekiah speaks a word of trust in God in 38. What do you fill in in 39? Maybe there's a word of praise here to God on some level, but it certainly seems when we look at these two chapters contrasted one with another, that Hezekiah's statement is not meant to commend him and to close out the book on Hezekiah that he has spoken faithfully to the Lord. Again, I don't know that we can entirely understand, but we certainly would anticipate in this contrast a statement that is in some sense at least falling very short. So the first 35 chapters of Isaiah lay heavy stress on Israel's need to trust God and not to turn to their godless neighbors for help. But allying in friendship with the pagans around them to provide military help 
there would be an infidelity to God. Hezekiah has stood out among the kings of Judah as an example of how God wanted his people to trust him, to withstand the temptation of befriending the world. But here in chapter 39, Hezekiah fails. He does exactly what God does not want him to do. Hezekiah befriends the world, and the results are tragic. As we move then into chapter 40 through 66, we're not heading there as a church, but just as we think about that, as as the rest of the book unfolds, emphasis shifts from the present threat of Assyria now to the coming threat of Babylon. Again, people are saying, Babylon? How is that possible? And it'll take almost two centuries for the prophecies to be fulfilled. But chapters 40 through 66 also lay heavy stress on the servant of God who will deliver his people. To some degree then, chapter 39 demonstrates that Hezekiah, although a good and faithful king, is not the ultimate servant of God who will deliver his people. So whatever Hezekiah intends to say in verse 8, it's clear that his response lacks any vision of the pending doom that will come upon Judah from Babylon. And so this faithful king proves in the end to be what? He's a man of flesh, like we all are. He falls short of God's expectation in his life. He proves disloyal to the Lord in the end, on at least, a small, in, at least in his small-mindedness, which is where we always end when we befriend the world in disloyalty to God. As we consider this text, in fact, if you just read it quickly, you say, what on earth does this have to do with us? It's got nothing to do with us. That's first blush. But as we begin to lock this narrative into the entire Bible, we realize it's far more than a curious story. It is a narrative that locks into the major biblical theme of the holiness of God's people in relationship to the world and the separation of God's people from worldliness. Hezekiah did not need to slam the door in the face of the envoys. It was not wrong for him to host them and to speak appropriately to them. His error comes in befriending Babylon. He could have shown them to a room where they could stay with him. He could have fed them food to care for them, but he shows them his storehouses, his treasure rooms. He shows them the secrets of Judah. That's different. He befriended Babylon, whom God had not befriended, and who never dreamed of befriending God. The Babylonians were very nice to Hezekiah on his visit. They were very complimentary. But give them the opportunity and they'd steal everything they saw. They would desecrate the temple of God in Jerusalem. They would haul off its riches to their own land. They would display those riches in their own temples in defiance of the living God. Which we see in the book of Daniel with Belshazzar. What does he lift up in drinking, in his wild party, rejecting the God of Israel? He picks up some of the vessels that came from the temple. 
That's Babylon. That's your friend. Hezekiah, the friend that you've nurtured, the friend that you've shown your wealth, this is how that friend will treat you. The sin in which this narrative is rooted then is the sin of God's people opening their souls to fellowship with unbelievers in a way that is disloyal to God. There are many such temptations for God's people today. The problem is that we live in a world in which those who believe the gospel seem to become increasingly unaware of the distinction between the church and the world and confused about what constitutes worldliness. We have on the one hand people who invent worldliness. They think they know what it is and they identify things that have nothing to do with it. We have, on the, other pe- on the other hand, people who swim in worldliness every day, every day and never know they're wet. How will we pursue faithfulness to the Lord? Well, what is the world? It's a life orientation that is oblivious to God. If not hostile to Him, it's at least oblivious to God. It's living out your life as if God is not. And every one of us, whether in a context of work or neighborhood, school or family, we live among people who live that way. They just live as if God is not. Some of them are in defiance against God. That's much easier to detect But what's difficult to detect sometimes are those who just simply don't have any place for God in their life and their thinking, their actions. And so what is worldliness? It is the spirit of the age that hijacks the systems of education and entertainment and government and jurisprudence and business and music and art and literature and sports and technology and on and on. And it infuses us fuses all of these systems with there's no God. There's no one supreme, true, and living God who reigns as Lord over all of these systems. He just isn't there. And you can supply your own God as long as it doesn't get in the way of my God. And you can even be the God of your own universe if you choose to. That's fine as long as you don't impose upon me. But worldliness is thinking about this life, thinking about the systems of life that bring our lives together and just saying there's no God there. Linking all these things to the God-denying, law-breaking, idolatrous orientation that Satan so enjoys. That's a big picture. On the narrow picture, what might it be? It may be a married man in our church entertaining a flirtatious relationship with a woman in the neighborhood. She unlocks the door of opportunity relationally, and rather than walk away, he opens the door ever so slightly. It may be a single adult who befriends and begins to date someone who is not loyal to the Lord, who lives their life as if God really doesn't ultimately matter. He tells you how beautiful and smart and funny you are. He makes you feel so very good about yourself. And you open up your soul to this friendship that does not have God at the center. 
She tells you she's been looking for a responsible and strong man just like you her whole life. And you open your soul to this connection, this friendship that sets God and His Lordship on the fringes. It may be partners at work who flatter you with recognition of your skills and then solicit your partnership in some, well, kind of shady dealings. They need your smarts. They need your expertise. They need your partnership and your friendship. But what they're going about is really probably not entirely above board. You see what happens in these kinds of situations, again, is God gets set on a shelf. He gets set to the periphery. He doesn't matter. I'm impressed that you want to relate to me in this way. And God doesn't weigh in at all. It may be nothing more than an invitation to embrace a philosophy or spirit that is promoted in a song, a movie, a novel, a conversation among peers. It may be identifying with a group of friends who pull you in and lead you away from a faithful walk with Christ. It may be being drawn in by this culture's incessant love for wealth. And to say, I'm going to live my life because I'm getting patted on the back, I'm being encouraged by those who are around me, I'm going to live my life to make money, to use wealth. And I'm not going to order my life to giving for God, to using my resources to advance His cause and His purpose. I'm going to glut it on what I want. At the heart of all of this temptation is the temptation that Hezekiah faced. It just looks different. And nobody's going to have anybody knock on their door today and say, well, you will lie against another nation. And if, if they do, <laughs> you're not going to go for it, are you? You're going to run. You're going to call somebody. You're, it, obviously, we don't have anything like this in our life. But we have this very thing going on all the time in our lives. Someone opens the door. It's unlocked, and they say to us, come on through, join me. The warning that I think we gain from Hezekiah is that forging such friendships with people who do not love God always ends badly. Such relationships will eventually betray you and drag you down as to crush any ambition you had for God and His truth. It's different for all of us. It's, this is a real battle in my life. It would look very different than it would look in your life, undoubtedly. But where is that area of temptation? Where is, has Satan thrown open, taken off the lock and said, come on through the door? Where is the world drawing you in? Where are you weak in the world's pursuit of your soul? But we need to become as a church and continue to be as a praying community. We need to continue to seek the Lord in prayer as Hezekiah did with Assyria and sickness and as he apparently did not do with Babylon. To be a praying people that seeks the face of God, that seeks His purposes, that knows that we're in a battle with the allure of the world. 
We need to become a discerning community of faith. Not one that picks ideas about what worldliness is arbitrarily. But not one that swims in the cesspool and doesn't know that we stink. The kind of friendship we should be seeking with the world is not the kind that joins us with them against God. But it should be the kind that joins them with us in walking in fellowship with the Lord. It would not have been wrong for Hezekiah to say, from his perspective, you want me to do this for you, Babylon? I want you to hear the word of the Lord. And to appeal to the Babylonians to come to the light in Israel. And so it should be for us. There is a right way of befriending the world. We should indeed throw open our storehouses. Our storehouses being the treasure house of the amazing salvation that's in Christ. Not throw open the storehouse of our soul and say let's commune in a relationship where God doesn't exist. But rather to throw open the storehouses of the wonder of salvation in Christ and to say here come and take of these riches. Join with us in these riches of salvation. We live in a world that is alienated from God due to sin. And through Christ's sacrificial death, there is a reconciliation with God that has been provided. Jesus Christ dying as God's sacrificial Lamb. The God-man in the place of sinners to take our sin, to pay its penalty, and to give us new life and reconciliation with God. How can we not share this treasure with the lost world? Isn't it frustrating to you as it is to me how easily tempted we are to commune with the world in the things that will drag them down and keep them on the road to destruction? And how difficult sometimes it is for us to convey to them the message of hope and the treasure in Christ that we can give freely and bring them out of the destruction of the world in which they live and into the hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Let's ask God to change our hearts, to direct us in the way that He wants us to go and to draw others into that life, to share the treasures of Christ, crucified and risen with the world, but never to be unfaithful to our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need You and we find ourselves weak. The infidelity that we've discussed here in Hezekiah is not something where we merely point the finger. We recognize the temptation to infidelity in every one of us. Allow us here in prayer to come clean before You and to recognize those places where we live as if God is not. Help us to recognize any friendship in our life that the central communion of that friendship is denying Your Lordship over every area of our lives. Help us to define that, to renounce it. And Lord, I pray that as Your people we would also learn to give out the treasure of Christ. To open the storerooms and invite people to look in 
and to see the wonder of salvation in His name. We thank You for the privilege to have sung about this earlier today. We thank You for the privilege to consider Your Word. And I pray, Father, that You would find us faithful, and that we would be seeking to grow in our walk with Christ and in our right relationship with the world. Shining as light, being salt in this world, but not in any way loving it or being unfaithful to you in our relationships. And again, we pray for anyone who does not know Christ as Savior and ask that you would bring them to a place of saving faith today. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy in providing this salvation and plead that some who need that would turn and come to the saving light of Christ today. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Please stand with me. We've, we've heard the piercing word of the Lord this morning.